there and welcome to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Los. The Gontrepreneur.com podcast gives us an opportunity to speak directly to entrepreneurs, cannabis growers, product developers, and cannabis medicine researchers, all focused on making the most of cannabis normalization. As your host, I do my best to bring you original cannabis industry ideas that will ignite your own entrepreneurial spark and give you actionable information to improve your business strategy and improve your health and the health of cannabis patients everywhere. Today, my guest is Mowgli Holmes, co-founder and chief science officer of Phylos Bioscience. Mowgli is a molecular and evolutionary biologist. He has a PhD from Columbia University, where he was a National Research Service Award Fellow. He is a founding board member of the Cannabis Safety Institute and the Open Cannabis Project, and is a chair of the Oregon State Cannabis Research Task Force. Mowgli and his team at Phylos are focused on mapping the cannabis plant family tree. They have created a 3D map of the cannabis genetic family in order to better understand the traits of individual cultivars and empower us to create crosses that can provide targeted relief to humans. Welcome to the show, Mowgli. Thank you, Shango. So, you know, to get us started, in order to get a snapshot of the timeline that we're going to be discussing today, what's the farthest back that we can claim that humans knew about the cannabis plant? And at what point can we show evidence that humans were trying to domesticate the plant by some sort of intentional relationship with it? So um, all the evidence that we have points to cannabis being domesticated right when we first domesticated any plants, which is about 10,000 years ago. We think that the first origin of domesticated cannabis was, um, you know, somewhere between eight and 10,000 years ago, somewhere in Central Asia. The, the oldest actual sample that we have is um, a 2,700-year-old sample that was discovered in a shaman's tomb that was dug up in the Gobi Desert. Wow. So, so, you know, how do you go about getting this kind of material? I mean, I'm sure that with some of the hybrid stuff that's happening modern, I mean, you can ask friends or go to a dispensary, but how do you get your hands on, on cannabis from a shaman's tomb? <laughs> I mean, for us, the, the collection process has been so fascinating and difficult and complicated and there's all these different layers of historical samples so you know we've got a lot of modern dispensary stuff and then we've got a lot of um, second and third gen hybrids that we've collected by just reaching out to our broader network of connections in the cannabis industry and tracking down old breeders and collectors and um, and just collecting really all over the world and, and having our partner labs in different states and even different countries extract DNA for us. Um, we've, we've got samples of the, the early first-gen hybrids, um, which you know, were the first time that people ever crossed land races together. You know, the classics like you know, Maui Wowie mm -hmm. and, uh, and you know, Panama Red and Kona Gold. So, so those those are some of the oldest ones that, that we have that are hybrids. And then, and then going back and, and going to lots of other countries, I think we have samples from 16 different countries now, we've been able to collect a lot of land races. Um, but then getting the really old stuff has been a process of um, working through our museum connections and reaching out to the herbaria, the, the big plant museum collections where people have 
you know, dried plant material that has been preserved for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and that particular old sample from China right now is in the Turpan Museum. And we've been trying for a year and a half to get a hold of it. Um, we, we know some of the people who were on the paper that first described it. Um, one of our collectors um, travels to China regularly. We think we'll have a sample in the next few months, um, but you know, it's, it's very difficult coordinating international exchange of, of samples that until you extract the DNA are illegal um, with people in the northern China, who, you know, many of whom don't speak English. It's, it's just a, it's a very <laughs> complicated process. But that sample is sitting there. Um, and in fact, there is a little bit of DNA from it in the archive at GW Pharmaceuticals. And that's another potential avenue that we're working on. Um, I can imagine how helpful the museum has been to give your project some more, some more cred in trying to, you know, get a sample like that from China. And I know that I'm really, you know, showing my hand as being a genetics novice with this next question. But you know, those the, those genetics are so old. Are they still viable, or do they break down and degrade with time? I mean, I don't know how how much I've learned from Jurassic Park is real, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, um, dry material uh, can never produce living material from with plants. Mm -hmm. There's just no way. So, um, you know, the slightest bit of living tissue could, in theory, be coaxed into a new plant. Though, honestly, you a lot of things need to be done correctly for that to work. Um, but if you go into even a dispensary and you get some stuff that was cured, you know, last week, uh, it's, it's dead and it, it's not going to grow. So, so, so all we can do is analyze the DNA. We're never going to be able to grow those plants. And it's the same with dinosaurs. You know, you, you find fragments of their bones or whatever, and you, you can often get DNA and analyze the DNA. But you're not going to grow a, a live dinosaur. Yeah, much much to most everybody's disappointment. So I know people keep asking <laughs> us to bring back Panama Red with some kind of Jurassic Park style technology, um, but uh, I don't think it's in the cards. All right, so so that was looking backwards. So you you you're gathering these uh, these samples that are are ancient through you know your museum relationships and the stuff that's you know a few, several decades old. You're getting from you know different collectors and secret friends around the world who have who have kept them reliable. And then of course the modern hybrid stuff is pretty easy to get. So, all right, so now you know these seeds and these genetics all somehow tend to find their way to Northern California, right? Where they thrive and are crossed and recrossed. And if I understand how your mapping project works correctly, you actually have to unravel this, th these crosses so that you can plot them out uh, into your beautiful 3d, 3d graph. So, you know, to what extent is it even possible to unravel the crazy soup of crosses and recrosses that are sitting in Northern California so that you can make sense of it? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a scientific hairball. It, it, it really is. Um, I mean, the galaxy, our, our map of the cannabis population, I mean, if you, if you played with it, you know, it, it is a very tangled structure. Mm -hmm. um, 
that is the structure. I mean, that that structure in the galaxy doesn't represent any untangling of the actual structure. Like that that is the tangled structure right there. And as we start to fill in more and more samples, uh, as we fill in more older, interesting land race type samples, I think some more clarity will be added. As we fill in more modern samples, it'll just get messier and denser because you know each position in the galaxy is the actual genetic position that it has and so when you have complicated backcrossing and selfing and hybridization you end up with these weird clusters um, and you know we positioned all those dots in the correct relationship to each other in genetic space as well as can be done um, and the mess that you see there reflects the actuality of, of how tangled and confusing the population is. Uh, so it, it's just complicated. But as you go back in time, things will clarify. So you know, pretty soon we'll be able to tell people things like, um, your sample is 30% Thai and 15% Colombian heritage. It's, it's just like what 23andMe does for humans. If you, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If, you, if you go to 23andMe, you can order a genetic testing kit and, um, and then they'll sequence your DNA and they'll do an analysis very much like we do and they'll tell you your ancestry is 15% Native American and 5% Dutch and your grandfather who told you that he was from you know, Holland was actually from Namibia. Sorry. You know, and people, <laughs> people find out all this interesting stuff. And we're using a lot of similar technologies, so we'll be able to tell people a lot of similar things about their plants. Let's nerd out on the Galaxy tool for a minute. So, so most of the listeners probably have not seen it yet. And to my novice eyes, what it looks like is this beautiful computer-rendered 3D architecture that you can move around and focus in on and come back out and it, and it creates a data space that shows the relationships of all these different genetics. So so how, in, in what way as a scientist does it help you to be able to visualize this as a 3D tool instead of just doing it the traditional way with, you know, paperwork? Right. Well, so so th that tool is actually just a super fancy um, version of what population geneticists actually used. So um, lots of people have asked us why it's not a tree. Um, it turns out that trees have show branching separation. You know, the branches branch and separate from each other. And that is a good picture of how species separate. And then when they can't intermate anymore, they go off on their own branches and they're separate forever and they keep branching. Um, so evolutionary trees show a lot of different species. If you have one species that can hybridize, you know, you get lines across all those branches and, and it becomes a network instead of a tree. So population geneticists who want to map out the relationships of a bunch of humans or a bunch of dogs or a bunch of tulips or any one species, they don't use trees. They use a network or they use clustering tools like we've used. Um, so the state of the art in population genetics for looking at a population is a tool called PCA or principal components analysis that gives you this scatter plot um, where you see all these little dots and you can kind of see how they're positioned with respect to each other. Usually those are done in two dimensions, but you can project them into three dimensions and you get more information and people have done that. 
And people have also made those network lines that you see on the, the galaxy, um, which is a different way of looking at the relationships. No one's ever combined them and, made, and no one's ever made it three-dimensional and made it interactive. But we just took those basic tools from population genetics and made it, we tried to make a version that was fun for normal people to play with. And, you know, if it was any other subject, it'd be too sciencey for people to deal with. But because it's cannabis and because breeders and growers care so much about the history of this plant, I actually think it's going to be one of the first times that that non-scientists have been able to really geek out on on genetics um, because this is a community that cares about genetics. You know, they say that uh, cannabis is the gateway to horticulture. Maybe now, because of the technology, uh, cannabis is becoming the gateway to genetics for folks, too, because you're right. People care about this plant like like none other. So one more question for you before we go to the break. So you mentioned a scatter plot. So, so I've seen scatter plots when they are comparing or relating uh, many different species. And, and you say that, okay, we're, we are looking at one species that's been cross-hybridized with itself so many times. So, so what would the scatter plot look like for a cannabis? Um, is it, if, would it all be scattered so close together that it just make a single blob in the middle of the page because it's also hybridized? Well, but, but the, galaxy, the galaxy is the scatter plot. It's just stretched into three dimensions so that, so imagine if you compressed it into two dimensions. Um, it would be messier, but because it's three dimensions, you can spin it around and look at it from different angles. That is the scatter plot. It's just, um, it's just presented in a way that makes it so you can actually climb around inside of it. So, so one thing that I should say is that people have, I mean, it's just a fancy version of, like I said, of tools that population geneticists use. So we're, we're already talking to people about using it for cocoa and, and, uh, I mean, and uh, sorry, I mean cacao and coffee varieties. And we just talked with a group from Stanford that has done a population genetic study of a, a whole human population. And they're going to use the galaxy to visualize their data because it's just a good tool for, for looking at how populations are structured. Right on. Cool. Well, when we get back from the commercial break, we're going to talk about some of the com uh, commercial applications of this. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. As a cannabis entrepreneur, you know how challenging recruiting quality talent can be. Your day's already busy enough, and yet there is an ever-growing pile of resumes on your desk, and your team is begging you to hire more help. Hiring the right person can make a profound impact on your company. There's no reason that you have to suddenly be an expert hiring manager. Not when there is Viridian Staffing. Viridian Staffing recruits solely for adult-use cannabis, medical marijuana, and hemp companies and those that service them. Viridian Staffing's recruiters each have over 10 years of experience, and they will use that experience to recruit the kind of employees that will make you look good. Whether you're looking for a master grower extractor, grow room support, or trimming, Viridian can find an appropriate person in your area. They can even recruit administrative or graphic design professionals who may not need cannabis experience. Because you are a startup, you may also need human resources help for a while. Viridian staffing can make sure that your HR files are complete and keep you out of trouble with state and federal employment requirements. 
because the cannabis industry is booming, cannabis recruiting companies are popping up all over the country. But good marketing does not mean good recruiting. Some of the recruiting shops that have opened are run by novices who do not yet have a thorough understanding of employment law and the complexities of hiring for cannabis. Don't hire an amateur to find you a professional. Consider Viridian Staffing to make that stack of resumes disappear and complete your team with exactly the hire you were hoping for. You can find out more at viridianstaffing.com. That's V-I-R-I-D-I-A-N staffing.com. And now back to the show. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Mowgli Holmes, co-founder and chief science officer at Phylos Bioscience. So right before the break, uh, we were talking about how some of these different industries are excited about using your your 3D mapping tool, the Galaxy, uh, for whatever industry they're working in. So let's let's riff a little bit on some of the commercial applications across the board um, for the for the family tree of cannabis that you're putting together. So, you know, the first thing that jumps to mind is intellectual property. You know, we had we had Reggie Godino uh, from Steep Hill on the show, I don't know, maybe eight weeks ago, talking about how uh, for breeders, they're going to have to get to an F9 in order to uh, patent something with the federal government when that time comes. And it seems to me that your family tree is going to be really useful for all types of breeders who are going to want to show their place on the tree and therefore try to own it with a patent and then license it. Is that, a, is that an accurate understanding? So I think some people see it like that, but we don't see it like that. All right. How do you see it then? So, I mean, right now the, the conversation about IP and patents uh, in the world of cannabis is is heating up in a big way and people are really sort of, you know, striking around, trying to figure out what to do about it. Um, and, and, and me and Reggie have taken very different approaches to, to how to deal with it. But, um, I actually got to see Reggie last week and we, we spent a few hours talking about it and, um, and our approaches aren't as, as different as we thought they were. So, but, but they are a little different. Um, so we actually see the galaxy as a tool to block plant patents rather than to enable them. So, you know, what everybody's worried about is, is the coming invasion of big ag and, and the potential threat from them patenting lots of stuff and maybe restricting access to it. And, you know, Reggie's approach was, well, let's get your stuff sequenced and, you know, people can try to patent their own stuff and then, you know, Big Ag won't be able to to patent it or grow it. And our approach was, let's get all this old stuff sequenced and use that as proof that it's in the public domain so that no one can ever patent it. And and those are two different and and kind of valid approaches, um, but our our feeling is that plant patents aren't going to be a good tool in this industry. So first of all, all of this old stuff 
is in the public domain. It has to be legally. It is in the public domain. If stuff has been circulating or sold, it cannot be patented. So we're giving all of the data that we can give to a nonprofit that we've been working with called the Open Cannabis Project. And they're just going to sort of keep track of the database and make sure that um, all of the existing strains have some evidence showing that they're in the public domain. They've been sold and they've been circulated and therefore, according to patent law, they can't be patented. Only brand new things that haven't been sold ever can be patented. But that wouldn't stop someone from coming in and taking something old and renaming it and pretending it was new and trying to patent it um, because there's no no one's been watching cannabis. The USPTO has not been watching it. There's no proof that things are in the public domain. So we wanted to use all of this sequence data as proof that things are in the public domain. And and we got a lot of pushback, especially from Northern California, because a lot of growers said, well, I, I want to patent my stuff. And our answer to that has been, well, if it's old or you've sold it, you can't patent it. And if you make something new, that's a different story. Um, Right now, the, the government's not supporting cannabis patents, though it looks like they may start to. They granted one utility patent already, um, and they may start to grant plant patents. But our general position has been that everyone needs to accept that the stuff that's out there now can't be patented, and we should be fighting to make sure it's in the public domain and no one tries to patent it illegally. And then going forward, we do want breeders to find a way to get paid because they've done incredible work and we want them to keep doing incredible work. But they, you know, there is no structure that protects them right now. Um, and we don't know how to solve that problem. We, but we, we do think that plant patents won't be the way to do it because plant patents are expensive and difficult to get and hard to defend and don't work well in fast-moving, innovative industries like this. And they generally favor big corporations and they do not generally turn out to be a tool for little guys. Um, and so that's our feeling. We feel like people should keep their brand new stuff proprietary, hold it close, and as a community, we should figure out how to support breeders in, in getting licensing fees and royalties. But it's a really, really tough question. And I don't think the USPTO is going to be the answer for, for the community. But we'll see. I got to say that I'm surprised and actually pretty stoked by your answer because, you know, I came into this interview expecting you to say that, you know, yes, we are making this this key to the past of cannabis genetics. And because of that, you're creating the bed for, you know, big ag and big pharma to come in and and patent these genetics because they will be able to do so faster than than every man and and to build on that. And it's true, you know, anything that already exists and is being sold can't be patented because it's already out in the market. So so this leads me to the question of um, what if you were to take two, say, land races and, and, and cross those, and let's say that was done for the first time by a pharmaceutical company, um, it, would they then use uh, the galaxy to show that this cross doesn't exist and then their hope would be then to use that evidence that their cross is unique and therefore it could be patented? Is that how, you, the, how the exercise is thought through? So, so there, the, the existing apparatus for patenting plants is, is there is a big existing structure in place. You can get three different kinds of IP protection over plants. Um, there's enforcement, there's regulation. Um, 
once all those things come into play for cannabis, if they do, uh, it, the galaxy won't be part of that. I mean, in fact, uh, you can use DNA sequences to prove that something has been around and is in the public domain, but you've never had to use DNA sequences in order to patent things because, I mean, we never had them before. It's a bunch of different criteria that um, Big Ag uses to, to patent plants. So, so we don't think the galaxy will be a useful tool to help little guys patent things or big companies patent things. If, if, if anybody makes a brand new cross and can prove that it is truly unique and different and novel. And if they want plant variety protection, they need to prove that it's um, true breeding. Uh, if they can prove all those things, then in theory, they can get a patent if the USPTO is willing to grant that kind of patent. Um, they wouldn't need the Galaxy at all. The Galaxy is really a tool for the industry to see what they have um, and understand where things came from and, and really ultimately identify what they're selling to people. So, you know, right now it's total confusion in this, in the strain naming world. And, you know, if you look at the galaxy, there's one big cluster of Girl Scout cookies and cookies, you know, varieties. Um, but there's a bunch of other Girl Scout cookies all over the galaxy. They're in different places. So by definition, they're genetically distinct. So which one is the real one? Um, it's answering those kind of questions, um, which we hope to be able to do with the galaxy, so that in the future, um, rec users and medical patients can get the same stuff over and over and over instead of wandering into dispensaries and getting something different every time. I mean, it's 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 really much more a tool to bring consistency and knowledge to the industry um, than to help people with their IP issues. All right. So I've got one more question on this kind of corporate science topic before we move on to, um, you know, some real world medical applications for your technology. And that is we did a show a while back um, where Tyler Marquardt made the case for GMO cannabis. And I'm sure that the genetic insertion folks are kind of beside themselves excited to get their hands on the galaxy to help them figure out where they want to work. What are your thoughts on genetic insertion GMO? Yeah. So again, uh, the galaxy is not a, a, a good tool for that. I mean, if you asked a scientist, they would tell you what, what you need to do genetic modification is a big, detailed, um, annotated version of the entire cannabis genome. And a lot of groups, including us, are working on that. And we, and we do want to make that public. Um, and that would be the public resource that would help um, people understand genes and help with breeding, and it would also help people do genetic modification. Um, we don't support that. We don't support most of the um, things that big ag companies do in terms of agriculture. We we don't like the we don't like pesticide use. We don't like monoculture. We don't like um, restrictive plant patents, and and we don't. And we, we definitely don't think that the cannabis community wants GMO cannabis. And we think that modern plant breeding tools actually are so powerful that you can make naturally bred plants with whatever traits you want without cutting and splicing genes back and forth. And I, I just, I, yeah, I, I think, I think breeding is, is the way to make new plants. And I think that, um, 
if people start doing GMO cannabis, it's going to be, um, I just don't think this community wants that. I think, I think we really, I think we really want plants to be bred naturally. Right on. Cool. So, so we're going to take one more commercial break. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, breeding uh, for specific uh, uh, treatment of ailments. Uh, we'll be right back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. The Gontrepreneur podcast is listened to by tens of thousands of cannabis entrepreneurs and enthusiasts every single week. These folks are most likely your target customers, and we'd like to introduce you to each other. Our down-to-earth and information-rich commercial breaks can deliver your message to the cannabis business community and others who just find relief in getting high. If you want to reach out and connect with our audience in the most personal way that we can offer, go ahead and drop us an email at grow at and we can talk about you becoming a commercial sponsor of the podcast. Thanks for listening and being part of the Gontrepreneur family. Now back to the show. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Mowgli Holmes, co-founder and chief science officer at Phylos Bioscience. So the part that I want to end with is, is how the 3D galaxy map of the cannabis family tree is going to help real people. You know, this show is really in favor of patients' rights and the medical applications of cannabis, all the way to believing that recreational cannabis is actually medical cannabis because it's giving stressed out people the opportunity to get some relief from that stress. And, yeah, and, and what absolutely. And what you're building is this beautiful thing. This The, the galaxy is is, is beautiful to see. It, it traces the genetics over history. And, and it, it's got me thinking that there just has to be ways to apply that knowledge looking forward, put it in the hands of breeders so that they can develop specific cultivars to address particular ailments. Is it going to be useful for breeders to do that? It, it will be. It, it's funny. Um, I don't want to downplay the galaxy. I, I think it's a great tool. But you, you asked me if it would be useful for IP, and I said, well, it's not really good for that. Would it be useful for um, genetic studies or genetic manipulation? It's not really good for that. <laughs> and it's, and right at the moment, it's not really a tool for breeders either. It's <clears throat> The main thing it's a tool for, like I said, is, is knowledge and bringing consistency to the industry so, so people can finally start to know what they're getting. Um, but it will evolve into a tool that's good for breeders because as we start to be able to add trait data, you, you can imagine a, a THC or a CBD heat map superimposed on the galaxy. And we have lots of other kinds of data we're going to roll out. You'll be able to click on individual nodes and see chemical metadata for them and location data and we'll have a geographic view showing where things came from. And all of that stuff will let breeders make intelligent choices about what parents to pick when they're when they're looking for new traits um, or what parents to pick when they you know want something but don't have it and they want to find something nearby um, so all of those things will will help breeders uh, I mean really the way that breeding is going to work in the future is that I mean, there's a whole set of breeding tools that just go beyond the galaxy, you know, that that have to do with sequencing the progeny when you make a cross and looking for the right genes. And and once we start to understand what all the different genes are doing, that's a way that we can help breeders really accelerate their work. And and so I think that's going to be 
the, the future, and that's what's going to let us develop the next generation of, of cannabis varieties. And I think the Galaxy will be um, part of that, but it's really a whole other set of technologies in addition that have to be rolled out. And it all depends on really understanding the genome. You know, the Galaxy lets us understand the relationships, but it's another layer of work to understand what each of the genes are doing. And, you know, we're about to be operating under an Oregon State Cannabis Research License um, that will let us work with unlimited plant counts to do basic genetic research. And we're about to be able to start tracking down those genetic pathways. You know, where are the genes for pest resistance? You know, what are the terpene metabolism pathways? Pretty soon we'll know that stuff. You know, coming into this interview, I actually thought that by simply doing the map that you're doing, that you can see those genetics as part of that process and would know them. But now I'm realizing from so many things you're telling me that the, what the map is not, that actually it's a, it's, a, it's a really huge second step. The first step is, yeah, we're going to map it. And, and now we see the family tree, but now we have to figure out what these genetics actually do. Where, you know, where is the particular genetic for this taste or this result or, or the one that stops shaking in Parkinson's? You know, first, you're going to map the area, and then you have to go in and study what the delineations are. And it's only at that point that you have something that's really usable. That's right. That's really usable for, for breeding, at least. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely well put. Right on. That second step sounds like a hell of a lot more research. It's a lot of work, um, but I will say that, uh, I mean, it's scientifically the most fun project you could possibly have because yeah, right. scientists labor away um, in one little tiny corner of their fields, and there's always thousands of other people working on everything about every organism. I mean, here's an organism with almost no research done on it. So, so much of the, the, the next phase of this basic genetic research I'm talking about is going to come so fast because we know how to do this work. We've known how to do it for decades and we just haven't done it for cannabis yet. And it's just, it's just really exciting. Yeah, totally. I was I was talking with uh, Robert Clark at uh, Emerald Cup, and 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 we were just joking around, and and he's all like, "Man, it's it's really great to be a scientist in an industry that people care enough to actually want to talk to you." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. It's a brand new scientific field, and and normal people actually care about it. It's incredible. Right on. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for being on the show, Mogley. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. And I'll talk to you soon. Mowgli Holmes is co-founder and chief science officer at Phylos Bioscience. To find out more, you can go to their website at phylosbioscience.com. That's phylos, P-H-Y-L-O-S, bioscience.com. You can also watch Mowgli's fabulous slide presentation at TechFest Northwest by searching Mowgli Holmes TechFest on YouTube. If you want more info on cannabis genetics, uh, check out our back catalog interviews with Tyler Marquardt of Allele Seeds, Making the Case for GMO Cannabis, and also Reggie Gaudino speaking on patenting strains and botanical intellectual property. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur podcast in the podcast section at gontrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gontrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest cannabis news, product reviews, and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcriptions of this podcast. You can also download the Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. For info on me and where I will be speaking, you can go to shangolos.com. 
Do you have a company that wants to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email grow at gondrepreneur.com to find out how. Today's show was produced by Michael Rowe. I'm your host, Shango Lose. Thank you.